Hey gang, Bruce from Printavo here. Welcome back to another episode of Printavo Print Hustlers Podcast. Thank you for joining. Got a cool two-part episode here, okay? This is all about selling your business. And what I find interesting about this topic is that it's taboo. Nobody really wants to talk about it. It's kind of awkward. You kind of whisper about it. Are you, are you thinking about it? You know, it's funky. But uh, Mark Kudre here demystifies pieces of it. Again, it's two parts because we had so much to talk about and we kind of went on a tangent on this first episode, I'll be honest. <laughs> but it's really good. Thank you for listening. But real quick, first up, we've got some awesome sponsors that we want to mention. 1900hotstuff.com. Next, next read, please. <laughs> <laughs> graphic source. I was just at a shop um, in Illinois. They have two graphic artists there handling their steps, mock-ups, and uh, digitizing for their shop. So that was really cool. When it comes to steps, mock-ups, creative art, order management, embroidery, digitizing, back office admin, and customer service, there's no better company in our industry to work with. That's GraphX. With over 30 years in the game, they really know and understand shop needs and have a proven track record of success. We're actually working on a project with them to bring in some VAs. Ooh, so we're pretty fancy, excited fancy. about that to build online stores. Hit them up at graphicsource.com or 1900hotstuff.com for your art staffing needs and mention the Printavo podcast for 50% off your first vector SEP and embroidery order. Thanks, Nick, Lucas, and Brent. We appreciate you. And Rob. You shouldn't be spending all day cleaning dirty screens. Easyways line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster, more efficiently, and cost you a fraction. Ugh. Will cost you a fraction of the cost per screen. That always gets me. <laughs> and I know they were like, say it however you want, but um, I like trying to hit it. Fair, can you name your um 701-842? Alex <laughs> Allen. We appreciate you. Thanks, Easy Way. You guys are awesome. Bruce, do you have a Multicraft daddy in your life? Not yet. Uh, Multicraft underscore daddy. If you don't follow him, go follow him. How many followers does he have? I don't even know anymore. Um, but if you need ink supplies or a daddy, Multicraft screen printing and digital supplies for over 50 years has been providing you with top brands at competitive prices. Mention the Printavo podcast and receive an extra 10% off your first order. Thanks for the team at Multicraft. They hook it up with that Monarch Inc. We appreciate you. Boom. And before we forgot to mention, just mention Printavo Pod to uh, Graphic Source too. And there's also 50% off your order. I said that already, Bruce. Oops. Super you color. Listening. Super just color. Just had lunch with the Super Color gang, actually. Bruce, they, I feel like you have lunch with them every week. I just may. I, I try to... <laughs> I try to get lunch with random people to get off the laptop more and just like get, get out of my little bubble. Um, They're expanding like crazy. They've got facilities in New Zealand, in Europe, in uh, two in California and Atlanta. Um, they are the world's best heat transfer made by screen printers for screen printers. They understand firsthand the pressures and expectations of a screen printing business as that's where they came from. Um, and so that's why they pride themselves on being super fast and super easy. They are awesome for helping your DTF slash heat transfer side of your business excel. So make sure to use Printable 15 to get 15% off your order. You know, as we're getting into cold season, we start getting really nice jackets and I get really scared. Uh, we have these transfers that we like to use on them. Um, but last year, like we were heat pressing super color on North Faces. And so uh, when it comes to doing your cold weather stuff, Supercolor is banging. We appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. That's dope. All right. Let's jump on in. How are you? I'm old and tired and sore. We're, we're, moving, <laughs> we're moving locations and I'm moving boxes and equipment and racks and I'm just not cut out for this. Why? Well, our, our landlord <clears throat> passed away earlier this year and the estate decided to triple our rent. So we went from 3000 a month to 9000 a month in one shot. And uh, <laughs> they said, uh, since you're not going to want to pay $9,000, uh, you need to move. This is an so, office? Yeah. Yikes. So we've, we found a spot that was half the size of what we're doing right now. So I'm paring down 50 years worth of archives and samples and 
going back Holy through cow. and it's been a tremendous journey back in time. And, um, you know, looking back at how the business has evolved since 1973, looking at the financial statements and the production logs and all that stuff I saved, it's been amazing. Mark, that is something I, uh, I love when, when Jed, my business partner shows me his old stuff. Like he pulls out Ruby Lith from his basement, oh, or like, yeah. like his, he, he showed me like the letter books he would cut oh, letters yeah. out and then wax oh, yeah. arch them. Oh yeah. I keep telling, like, we want to, we want to see that like that. Those are gems that like, I always have like a great deal of respect for that. Cause like we hit a button and out comes a screen, right? Like, oh my God. So it would be really cool to have a museum that stuff. The first screen printing museum, just to even like share it. I think it's so fascinating to see how lithograph, like how Ruby lith work, how, and I don't feel like there's enough out there to actually like have like I, I, I'm curious if if you would share that that stuff is really cool I don't know I kind of nerd out about that stuff I think it's fascinating you should well, post post it on Instagram Mark yeah it should yeah. just be like it should just be the old stuff I would get it I I think it's awesome also can you change your handle to Doctor Kudre <laughs> I don't know I could I guess <laughs> um, I'm not a real doctor but I play one on the internet that kind of thing. You know, um, it, it's really amazing, you know, going back, looking at that and just realizing how brutally hard it was in those days. Um, you know, I was telling somebody yesterday, you know, we make an adjustment on the screen uh, for tone curves. And you just bend a curve down, you know, for us to do that in the old days, we had to make three different exposures on a piece of film in order to bend the curve. And then we got a we got a continuous tone negative from that, and then from the negative we had to contact it back to a half tone, uh, and then composite the half tone with masking to get the correction. And that would take like four hours to do that, and a set of separations would take typically up to a week to produce. Uh, and today it's like push a button and you're done. Uh, 30 seconds and you're finished. It's well, crazy. Steven, you, and you said your partner used to have to go downtown Chicago to the Sears tower to get wholesale garments. Well, right? they would, what would happen is, or he would tell me they would pre-order their blanks like oh. three or four months in advance. So they'd drive up to the Sears tower, they'd go in their showrooms and they, and they'd be like, okay, they think pastels are going to be in. So they'd be like, okay, we're going to get sport grays and pastels. And then, you know, that's no, what they had. No, no, you didn't. You got light blue, yellow, light yellow, uh, white, at ecru. That was it. That was the pastels. There was, that was no, the, that, that was, was it. it. There was no sport gray. No tie-dye? Uh, no tie-dye. Oh my God, there was nothing. There was nothing. And then in the darks, you could get red, navy, and black. That was it on the darks. Maybe Kelly green. And, and so no, like, that was rare. That was and, rare. And how long was that? until the supply chain turned to being like, you know, on-demand inventory purchasing? Like when, when was that change? Probably 80, 81, 82. So Sanmar, you know, we all know Sanmar. My customer number with Sanmar is 1,057. That's pretty cool. So they're in the like 150,000, 100,000 now. And we're like, you know, just over a thousand. We were one of the first almost 1,000 customers. And that was back in 79. Wow. Mm. Yeah. There mm. were no wholesalers. You ordered directly from the mill and you had to have at least 200 dozen. Uh, and it was all six dozen of a size. So, and you had to order in ratio of a one, two, two, one ratio. So they didn't give you the flexibility of ordering half dozens or pieces or, anything it was like okay you're going to order 6 12 12 6 of like blue and you'd order that months in advance and you'd cross your fingers and hope that they had uh, enough production to get to you and then you'd print them in a day and then it's like okay now what <laughs> it was it was insane and and so like we talk about this on other ones like the barrier to entry and screen printing you know has has lowered every single day like it's it's crazy, you know, even five years ago to now, I think the barrier is even lower with, with transfers and stuff. What was the barrier to entry? And, and I think 
I would ask, ask this in like technical screen printing, you know, doing the stuff that you were doing or just like the clip art screen printers. What, there was what no did that art. look? What? There was no clip art. Well, okay. Sorry. I use, I use the bad, like the one color guys versus like the technical printers. Was there, what were there differences or was everyone well, a technical printer then? What was that like? In the early seventies, um, it was a fad. It's the t-shirt fad. You know, and everybody would say, are you still doing that T-shirt fab thing? Or, you know, when are you going to get a real <laughs> they job? They still ask you that. I, I still well, get that question. My, like, yeah. aunts, my aunts and, and so, uncles still ask me that. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, we went just to give you guys an idea of what it was like. Uh, there were no personal computers at all. None. There was there was no Apple. There was no PC. None of that was existing. It was moving from mainframe to mini computers. So you could get like a PDP-11 uh, from deck or something like that, but it was not very useful unless you were doing typesetting for books and stuff. And then it was all code based. So it was really difficult to do that. So we went, I was running my business full time while I was getting my degree uh, at Cal Poly out here. And I changed my major from mechanical engineering to graphic communications because it was basically imaging science. It was the engineering of moving an image from a printing press to something, whether it's paper or plastic or, you know, whatever. Um, so I was running my business full-time, real-world laboratory on what was going on. Uh, when I graduated in 1977, March of 77, we went from 200000 in annual revenue, adjusted for inflation today. I just did this a few months ago. We went from 200000 to $4.2 in 18 months with no computers, no spreadsheet, no internet, no email, no fax, uh, one telephone line. That was it. You were using Printavo then? You guys weren't even born then. <laughs> yeah, it was it was insane. Chalkboard uh, Tavo. And and Mark, talk to us about that. So like hyper growth. I mean, that's 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 pretty insane. And there was no outside funding, by the way. What this was, is when uh, yeah, we're spoiled now, we know. Uh, so, so, um, and, uh, I was actually thinking when you said graphics communication, you know, if I were to ask a student at U of I, they're like, I'm a graphics communication major. I'm like, great. You learn how to use Canva every day, you know? Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's just complete. When you said like, I was in the lab, I just imagine like, wow, you're actually learning how to rip apart art and, and, and like digitize it in, in such a way. That's crazy. There was no, there was none of that. I mean, this yeah. was all, this was all camera based image assembly you take negatives and you would assemble them on flats Wait, which would how where, where did the sales come from how yeah how did you sell what was it word of we mouth from was 200 it, to four you said 4.2 million to how, i mean that's how yeah it's a lot in right? 18 months right oh yeah it was insane i was crazy stupid fast growth and you know i was under the under a bunch of false impressions uh First one was build a that's better a good, mouse. That's a good shop name, by the way. Yeah. False impressions. <laughs> False impressions. Uh, I, you know, I believed a lot of advice that was given to me, and it was just fundamentally wrong. You know, build a better mousetrap and the world will be a path to your door, right? That's all about innovation. If you innovate, then the world's going to do it, you know, come to your door. That's not true, because if you are truly innovative, and the work that I was doing at that time was decades ahead of what the market was doing um it had never been done before ever the current thinking was it was not possible to print full color on a fabric because it moved and yet my philosophy was if i can figure out how to make this work on an unstable surface i can print on anything my goal was to elevate screen printing from a craft to a process and so i was bringing engineering physics chemistry, math, all that stuff that you would normally do as an engineer, I brought that to the industry and it was too much of a jump. You know, in the, in the when I started this, the way you thickened ink was you added cornstarch to it. I mean, it's just, they talk about an ink kitchen. That's what it was. It was a freaking kitchen. People would stir crap into their ink, talcum powder, you know, just all kinds of things that made no sense. But it was like, well, we could do that, you know? And uh, so the way I started was my philosophy was I can bring advertising quality 
to major brands um, on apparel. And at that time, the major brands were just starting to see that apparel could really be great. The very first million piece run was for Morris the Cat for um, cat food. The main part of the run was done in LA with a company called Superscreen. And that was the first time I saw automatic printing is I went down to, to LA to see them print and they were printing four color process and it was freaking horrible. It was all over the place. Sometimes Morris would be green. Sometimes he'd be too magenta. Sometimes he'd be too blue, but they'd never seen that before. And then Superscreen had ran into financial difficulties and ended up closing. So we got the tail end of that run, which is a quarter of a million. And we brought stability to that run and it, they looked fantastic from day one. And from that, we started getting, you know, major things like Charlie the Tuna, Sunmade Raisins, uh, Armor All. My philosophy was I would do a spec sample for Coca-Cola. And the, uh, the one I did for Coke was the classic Santa Claus uh, on the, the tray. And I, I reproduced that as a separation. It cost me $700 in $1977. So that would have been, in today's dollars, that would be like $3,000 for a set of separations that big. So I did the SEP and I took it to Coke and I showed it to them in LA. And they go, this is unbelievable. How did you do this? And I said, well, you know, I've got this degree and, you know, I've, I applied, you know, more sophisticated technology to it. And they said, this is amazing. Here's an order for 5,000 shirts, white on red, Coca-Cola, <laughs> drink Coke, right? We can't do that really fancy stuff. So, you know, we use that, you know, as an entry point and got a 5,000 piece order for Coke. So now I can legitimately say we did business, we did printing for Coke. Uh, I did the same thing with Miller Brewing, got turned down, did the same thing for Country Time Lemonade, got turned down. So you were out hunting. This, this I was, is where I those was sales beat, went. Yeah. I was face-to-face, -face, young kid, mid-20s, um, pitching these guys. And we have a picture of early – I've seen some pictures, but we're going to need to bring oh, one I, over. I, can I, you found send a, them? I found a whole bunch. Oh, yeah. Uh, that would be, you know. Text me a couple of photos so we can pop them uh, So we can roll them over. Mark, that's really interesting that you said that. We interviewed Jeremy Parker from Swag.com, recently got acquired – by Custom Inc. And he talked about having Facebook and WeWork as his first clients and like just trying to get like doing whatever it took to he get that first did. brand name. He walked in to the well, table. And here's what, here's what I did. This is, this is where it really took off is that I got turned down by all of these top tier big dog companies. You know, the big printers were trying to print for Sears Roebuck at the time. Um, Target was just coming up. It really wasn't a big deal. Walmart was pretty big, uh, but they would just eat printers for lunch, you know, they like they still do, right? So unless you were, were operating at that league and had that capability, what I tell people, it's like, you're the best sixth grade basketball player in the whole freaking school system. And you decide to do a pickup game with the college kids. How do you think you're going to do? They're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what they did with the small printers. But my philosophy is contrarian to everything I do. Um, I said, okay, look, turn me down, turn me down, turn me down. Then I would take it to the second tier people like Sunmade Raisins and Armor. And I said, this is what we did for Miller. This is what we did for uh, Country Time Lemonade. This is what we did for Coca-Cola. Exactly what Jeremy said. And, and essentially... I, it's not a lie. I did do it for them. They may or may not have bought. Coca-Cola did buy, right? So I could say, this is what we did for Coke, and they bought 5,000 shirts. It was a one-color print. It wasn't, <laughs> completely, it wasn't completely transparent. But you know what? In those days, sales is not like sales today. Sales was like the old school kind of shifty, do whatever it takes to get the deal done. Yeah, but, and, but all it takes is that one. And then it, and then like that domino starts to drop. Um, oh, that's true in terms of the sales, but you right. still have to deliver. Correct. And this is the key thing is that the printers couldn't deliver. So they would sell these orders and then they would run into cash flow problems and they would run into technical problems and they would run into supply problems. 
And the sales guy would be, I sold the order. Here it is. You clean it and cook it, which basically is clean up my mess. I made all these promises. You guys figure it out. But since I was doing the printing and I had to buy the shirts, I knew that my reputation had to be perfect. And then I. That is wild. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Uh, Looking back. What Stephen was saying when we were talking to Jeremy at swag.com, he literally did the same thing. And I think there's a psychological, it, uh, when you're designing websites, there's something called social proof, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you put uh, things that you're doing to make other people not feel like they're the first person signing up for your service. So it could well, be, you know, we, we made 10,000 orders. We worked with these big brands and so on. And so he did the same, very similar as you, where he went to WeWork, set up all his promo swag stuff, got a couple departments there in New York just by, you know, just standing there all day. Yeah. And then he went to, oh, he he did Facebook. Okay. I'm sorry. Did Facebook at that sign up, then went to WeWork and then say, yeah, we print for Facebook. Did that, pulled it off, right? Got nose as well, and just kept letting that flow. It was the uh, modern Kudre theory. So we did the very first original shirts for Apple Computer, and we really? did them until 1983. You still have some pictures or no? Oh yeah, I still have them all. Have you? Did you meet Steve Jobs? No. Everybody avoided Steve Jobs like crazy. You did not want to be on Steve Jobs' radar. <laughs> because if, if Steve Jobs, these separations you know, are shit. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell, you, I'll tell <laughs> you how I'll tell you how bad it was with Apple. They have the all-time record for the worst art preparation. They gave us a ten-color mechanical, and a, and a mechanical is each color on a layer, right? So it was ten colors. They gave us a, a mechanical with ten colors on each layer. It took us almost two weeks because we had to make 10 masks for every layer and then make 10 registered burns to get all the colors onto the same layer. So that was a hundred different masks and a hundred separate burns to get 10 colors in the right order with perfect registration. Would you, would you charge them? Do you remember? Oh, I don't even know, but it was never enough. I probably could. I'd have, to, I'd have to go through the files and go through all the deals. But we did, you know, we did. It's like, shit, ten, we didn't charge enough. Well, we did tens of thousands of shirts for him because my rep that sold Apple was the same rep that sold Starkist Tuna and uh, Morris the Cat and all those. So we came in with credentials. And from that, because we did Apple, we did all of the Adobe work up until 2011. When they, when they stopped doing software, you know, and started doing cloud-based stuff. But every time they would do a release of Photoshop or Illustrator, we would do all these shirts for that. So we did, we did uh, Google uh, in the early 80s or early 2000s when they were just starting. We did Google, we did Adobe, we did advanced micro devices, we did Intel, we did Sun Microsystems. We did all the high-tech companies in Northern California. Wait, who's and, the, who's the, it sounds like there's a magic sales rep here too. That's helping. Well, uh, how, you, you know, you, did they have connections or, to yeah. these folks or are they oh, yeah. cold knocking on doors or, okay. So, oh, yeah. they, so we worked, we worked with a company, um, promotional products company in the Bay area. Uh, their name was brand via and they just were recently acquired by halo uh, and mm-hmm. uh, brand via was the epitome. Their whole thing was brand management and brand continuity. So everything that they did was to make sure that, that the brand was continuously represented. They were the very first ones to put together style guides that I ever saw that would apply to promotional products and apparel. And so we were, absolutely dead on. And we educated them. I would go up there and do seminars for the promotional products guys. And I will say, okay, color matching. Oh, we use Pantone. How do you know the color's right? Because it's from the book. How do you know the book is right? Well, by eye. Well, by eye is not calibrated. My eye is different than your eye. So I introduced them to spectrophotometry and colorimetry and showed them the differences between color books and why we want to work off of a specific color match, you know, a color sample that's mm-hmm. submitted by the client, how we want to make sure that if they're pr- producing something else in another product and it has to maintain continuity, that we have samples of the other products so we can see that everything matched. 
And we were, we were fanatical about the precision of what we were doing. So did you align with that promo company and then they had the connections or, or oh, yeah. like, what, okay. So you were basically like contract printing for. No, no, no. The, Well, yes, yes. And no, sometimes we would provide the whole package. Sometimes we would do contract. Got it. Got it. And that's what helped open up, you know, the apples, the sun microsystems. The that sun was kids. all later. That was all later. Oh, so that so, was direct from the, you that was from App, Apple was first with the, just the, the old school sales rep. Mm-hmm. you know, would go in and would pitch them. Um, well, so how, we, okay. So that's a good, right. So, cause that applies today. Apple, I'm sure still a big company then. Um, how do you get even a meeting with the right person? Who is the right person? How do you get in with the right person? Like did, did the sales rep have some sort of connect there? You know, just like one example that maybe people can apply to, Hey, I want to go sell uh, GoPro or, you know, whatever. You got to be strategic. You have to be strategic in your thinking as opposed to tactical. Tactical mm-hmm. is sending emails, you know, uh, sending text messages, uh, going on Instagram, going on Facebook. That's all tactical. Those are different ways of passively getting into the market. The way that I would do it and the way that I do do it and still do it today is I figure out who my target market is, who the target person is. I traditionally will use LinkedIn. Uh, and maybe something like Zoom Info or something along those lines, and I'll find out who my uh, key player is in the individual area. Then I will look in my LinkedIn network to who the common friends are. Do I have common friends with this person? And I've got about 14,000 now, I think, or 15,000, something like that on LinkedIn, Um, And I'll always end up, and if I don't, then I will work backwards until I do get connections with somebody and I'll start a secondary tier of um, influence with them, showing them samples, whatever it is. And then I'll ask for a recommendation, but I'll do it in a different way for each person. So I'll say, this guy's really an amazing technical printer. This guy understands branding. This guy, you know, really is, he's crazy in terms of understanding how to tell a story around the shirt and i'll tell two or three or four of my connections a different story to tell to my contact over a period of two to three weeks so oh go ahead go ahead mark i there there was something you said there if i might there are very few screen printers that use linkedin i don't know if you've noticed or like i don't care well no no because they're they're young they're young they're young and they're not they're trying to think what I'm saying is there's a really great opportunity. I yeah. live on LinkedIn. Like I live at breathe it. I'm probably on it more than Instagram at times. And I think what I'm hearing even from you is like generational gaps. Everyone should be on LinkedIn. <laughs> like there are not enough. If you're listening to this, like, yeah. It, and, and here's the thing, even if you're selling to a community or a coach, they still have a full-time job. They're on LinkedIn, right? Like even if you're selling to, you know, the principal of the school, it's might the be resume the, might be the little league coach. And like, you know, Eric Solomon uses LinkedIn quite a bit. Um, you mm. use LinkedIn quite a bit. Kevin from stoked on printing uses LinkedIn quite a bit, but it fascinates me that in the, in, in a different world, LinkedIn is everything like in our VC world right now, I'm looking for opt-ins, recommendations, sending blurbs out, doing all that. Like what you just said there, if, if, if people are listening to this and you don't have a LinkedIn, get one. <laughs> well, again, it depends on what you're playing, the, right. the playground that you're on. If you're on the right. sixth grade playground, you don't need LinkedIn. Sure. If you're on the college playground, you absolutely need LinkedIn because that's where the people that are making decisions are. I just and think you need that, one regardless. I mean, it's just like such a legit factor. It's it's almost like not having a website. It's like, uh, you know, that, that way they could browse the company. They could see a little bit more about you, feel a little more comfortable. But, but even if you don't have a company page, you're buying t-shirts from other humans. Those other humans are professionals with other roles. There's not like preferred t-shirt buyers out there. I think, you know, it's the easiest way to see how like it's. And what you said there, Mark, is you can see the second degree networks. And so then you can inch your way closer to them and kind of surround them from all corners. And then like, right. 
And then, and yeah. you know, like a lot of what I do right now is I create blurbs that have something like you said, Mark, something about the company that is very specific that I've done some research on and like the hook and, you know, uh, it's crazy in the professional world, how easily people will connect you to someone. Cause they always want to say like, Oh, I got a guy for this, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just wanted, I heard you kind of say that. And I was you, like, that, just that's a quick huge. extension on that. Uh, the other thing too, that I will do a lot of is just connect with anybody that seems interesting or with hiring connect with people. Cause what happens is, is they show you your second or third degree connections. And the more connections you have, the easier it is to sort of say, Oh, I, this person knows this. I mean, this is how we get guests on the show. This is how we get intros for, for like opportunities, just all kinds of stuff is the same thing. So, I never really thought about that. I'm glad you bring this up. Mark Kudre teaching us about social media. Hell yeah. Doctor. <laughs> well, Dr. And, and so here's, here's, I've used LinkedIn since 2008 when it was nothing because uh, one of my high school classmates was the CFO of LinkedIn. And so <clears throat> he's a gazillionaire now. He's like, Mark, you should try out this thing. I'm no, it's, yeah. He was really like totally shy in the background and, it was just stunned me when I found out that he was the CFO. But during COVID, um, the majority of the, of the work that I'm doing today is primarily business coaching. And it evolved from uh, the screen printing area. Now I'm, I'm teaching um, business brokers and CPAs how to better advise their clients to be successful. So during COVID, I connected with 9,000 business owners of $1 million to $10 million companies, which is my target market. Those are direct connections. And I did outreach to them. And I would outreach and say, you know, business owner to business owner, I'd like to connect and set up a short call to find out how this pandemic is affecting you in your industry and your geographic region. I have nothing to pitch and nothing to sell. My intention here is to try and understand the nature of this pandemic and anything that I find out that would help your business in any way, I'm, you know, I'm willing to share it to you at no cost. This is about surviving this. And I had over 600 calls, discovery calls that came out of that. And the network just exploded from that because it's like people are looking for leadership. They're looking for guidance. They're looking for somebody to do something. So the way LinkedIn works is instead of pitch and buy my stuff and I'm doing branding and all this kind of stuff, it's all about you. It's never about you. This is all about results in advance, providing guidance, providing insight, providing understanding. And what I advise all my clients is ask the questions or provide the guidance that they don't have answers for. And yet everybody's out there pitching the same way all the time and hey you're just another fish in the sea when you do that you've got to provide value that's outside the norm that's how you stand out uh, you know it's interesting bruce that you mentioned social proof social proof comes from a book that was written by uh, robert cialdini in 1981 it was called influence the science of persuasion and um it's a phenomenal book Anybody that's in business needs to read that book because it, it's the six primary ways that you influence people and end up persuading them to move in your direction, not in a pressure oriented way, but just psychologically, the things that cause people to align with you. And that's a strategic level as opposed to a tactical level. The tactical level is you want social proof. Well, how do you do it on Facebook? How do you do it on Instagram? How do you do it on LinkedIn? Whatever. That's the tactical aspect. You need a higher level view for it to be sustainable into the future to be lasting. Mark, you said a couple things there about like sustainable, um, defensible. Um, one of the one of the things we wanted to talk to you about was selling your shop or preparing to sell your shop or even right. buying up shops. Right. Um, and you've met with lots of people outside of the industry. Mm -hmm. What do you think when you look at a business 
you know, what are the two or three things that you look at and you say, that's a viable business or nope, that's not a viable business. Like what are, what are you seeing? If there were like two or three things that I could write down on a sticky note, what, what would you say are the most important? So I'm setting this aside from the VC world, which is funny money world, right? I'm, it's all, I'm in, I'm in funny money world. We're talking small business. We're in, I know. We're in small, but small so, business. Yeah. So what, what I've learned is since I've been involved with Profit First and have risen in the Profit First community as an influencer, so to speak, um, what I found is that business brokers reach out and say, hey, I, want, I, need to, I need to talk to you. I get dozens and dozens of businesses that want to sell and between 91 and 99% of the businesses that come to me are unprepared to sell. And so what does that mean? That means that they don't have cash flow management. They don't have profitability. They don't understand the difference between committed cash flow and uh, free cash flow. Free cash flow is the cash flow that's left out of profit after everything has been allocated. So your growth allocation, your marketing allocation, your, your reinvestment in your business, those are all allocations that come out of profit. So unless you're making a really healthy profit, you have nothing to sell. Right. And yet all these businesses are going, you know, we got a $2 million business. What's your profit? Well, we lost 80,000 last year. You're worthless. It's liquidation value. Right. The, the people that are buying small businesses fall into two categories. They're either people that want to have their own business and be in charge of their life. They want to get away from the J-O-B, right? And they want to be a business owner. Well, what they're doing is they're creating self-employment. They're creating a job for themselves. And the way that you can tell these people is they say, you know, I'm making $125 an hour. You know, if I was out there working, I would make like 30. I'm like really raking it in. They equate the money that they're generating to the wage that they would have earned working for someone else. That person is never going to get out of the, the I, dollars for hours. I level. quit the nine to five to do the 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're working twice as hard for half as much. Yeah. And so, so, so when you see that, that's a big red flag. When you see the owner, that's, that's, over self-employed is right. that is that a big red flag for you yeah it's it's typical it's okay. absolutely typical and this is why I, this is exactly why i moved away from technical development in the mid mid 2000s and moved into basically financial engineering for businesses because they need to be profitable and they need to have cash flow and that's been my emphasis for the last 10 15 years because Every single business, they're working hard, but they're not getting ahead. And right. this, they get burnt out, and then they try and sell their business, and they've got nothing to sell, so they end up selling at liquidation value, which is the value of their equipment. And, and, and I think what's interesting, so Bruce and I are diehard fans of this podcast called My First Million, and they talk about you know whether it's tech-enabled companies, straight you know technology or whatever, and they, they just, the second they hear consumer or things attached to the physical world, they die. They just, there were gross profits aren't 80%, right? They, they're like, we won't even touch it. We won't even look at it. We won't even do it. You know, how, how does someone like, not everyone's like, you know, going to build software and be able to do that. How, how does someone start thinking about, Hey, when I'm 50, like when I'm 65, and my kids don't want to take over this business, what the heck am I going to do? Or am I just going to pass off the press to someone else? Like, what do, what do you think are the things that they have to start doing today? Well, this is absolutely where my world is today. I get people all the time saying, I want to sell my business. <clears throat> I need to get more profitable. I need to use profit first, all these kinds of things. <clears throat> and when we start digging into it, and start asking them questions about what's your exit plan. They go, what? I said, what's your exit plan? Well, the kids are going to take it over. I said, have you talked to them about it yet? I can say this for a fact. My kids said, dad, mom, this is your dream, not my dream. I'm going to work for the man. I'm going to work in the corporate world. I see how hard you guys work and how you struggle to get us through school. You know, 
we, we did all the things. We did no student debt. We paid everything as it went, went along. Old school conservative that's kind of coming back around again um, in a way. Um, but they said, we don't want that. You know, we want to work. We want to get a paycheck every, every two weeks, you know. And so when you say to the business owner, well, what happens if your kids don't want it? They get the deer in the headlights look. Oh, uh, I, uh, 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 they don't have an answer. And then you ask them the next series of questions. Well, if you're going to sell it, who would you sell it to? And they have no idea. They just literally go blank because they're living in the moment. They're not thinking ahead. This is all part of the business strategy, the long-term view, whether you've got a five-year view, a 10-year view, or a 25 or 50-year view. Next year will be my 50th year in business with my first company. And out of that, I don't know how many shirts we've printed, 30 million, 40 million, something like that over the years. And now I'm on the tail end of that side of it. We still do outsource production on that, but it's, it's a different scenario. I don't have kids to sell the business to. Do I sell the business or do I just close it? You know, that that's interesting. I was posed with that question at 30, like, what's your plan? Do you want to run this thing? Like, a, you know, you're going to grow it over time. Who, who asked you that, Steven? Um, I, I was starting to get like... Or you just asked yourself, what, like, what's I, the longer I, I term plan? I was asking myself quite a bit, um, you know, like... We got married, Carson and I got married. Like, what, what is the plan? Right. One of the reasons we decided, I basically looked at it and I said, like, one of the reasons I decided to start, you know, taking on capital and growing this was like, I'm either, this is the start to my exit strategy, right. you know? And so now 99% of shops should not do what I'm doing and don't like, <laughs> should, should well, absolutely not do that because we are trying to be tech enabled. We are trying to get acquired by someone much bigger than us. There is a very high chance of failure. But one of the two things that I wrote kind of down and I said, look, like if, if I'm not going to do that, I have to remove myself from the business so it runs itself and I have to have really clean financials. That is the, to me, that was the only way that, you know, I could have, I could sell this to someone. And I think like shops listening to this should, should look at that and say, you know, how do my financials look? Are they really tight and clean and, or are they, do they look like shit? And then two, am I handcuffed to my business? Right. And it's like, if the answer is no to either of them, then I personally think that your business isn't sellable yet. I compare it to like, it's a, it's a much more technical. I ran painting companies in, in college. It's a much more technical, obviously trade, but what I worry about is like shops saying like, I guess I'll just sell my equipment. Like, cause, cause I don't know. I don't value a book of business as what did you say, Mark? Sorry, we're jumping you back into this. How do you value a book of business? You're going to lose what? 50% of it. Maybe more because the book of business is based on relationships. And when you buy right. the business, this is where business owners get totally screwed when they sell their business because a business owner, I started to say this before, they're either buying it for a job or they're buying it as an investment to run as an invested piece. The investor is not going to be running the business. If you have stock in Apple or stock in Facebook or whatever, you're not involved in anything of the day-to-day -day business. You're just an investment that you want to return on that investment. So serious money comes from the investors and that serious money begins to appear at about 10 million in, in revenue for the average business. Um, Again, this is, this is, you know, when you look at the financials of a company, I, I was shocked and, and amazed and actually stunned when I started working with CPAs, because I figured if you've got a certified public accountant, if you're licensed by the state at, to be an accountant, to make financial decisions and to advise with financials, you, you would understand what's going on. But the reality is, I would say 75 to 80% of the CPAs do tax work and they want to get out of tax work. They're doing what's called financial accounting. They're looking at what you've already done and already achieved or not achieved and giving you a report card on that. Your cash flow is this, your profit is this, um, 
your liabilities are this, your assets are this, um, and that's it. You owe this amount of tax or, or you don't owe any tax, right? Um, the, the accounting that I prefer and the thing that gets me excited is what's called managerial accounting. And managerial accounting is forward-looking. I call it brake lights on the freeway. And essentially what I do is I use predictive analytics to give a company a roadmap of where they're going and what to look for. I, I have found that having worked with almost 500 companies now in the last five years, screen printing companies, is that you meet them where they are on their journey. Are they at 500,000? Are they at a million? Are they at 2 million? Are they at 5 million? Are they at 10 million? Wherever they are, you meet them at that point and you, you optimize the business for that level because there are five levels between startup and 10 million where the business pivots and fundamentally changes. So what you knew at 500,000 doesn't work at a million. And what you know at a million doesn't work at 2 million. What you work know at 2 million or 3 million is not going to work again at five. And then finally at 10. So I see companies all the time growing from 500,000 to a million and a half is it's pretty easy to do today. And yet they're running the business like it's a sub $500,000 company. And the, the thing is a wreck. It's a mess. So it takes a couple of years to straighten it out. But once you straighten it out, they don't want to sell the business because now they're making money and they've got time. They were out of control living in chaos because the business was not designed and optimized to work well together. You know, Stephen, you've got engineering background. You know, it's gears. The gears fit and they mesh together. They work and they transmit the power and everything works. But if you've got the wrong mix of teeth, you're constantly grinding. You can't transmit. You can't work. You can't grow. So, you know, this is all about getting a business lined up to where it's working smoothly so the business owner can be looking at the business instead of being in the business. They're working on the elements of the business, whether it's the financial side, whether it's the marketing side, whether it's the technical development side, whatever it is, the business owner needs to be working in three different areas and not just one area. And, and people in our business are all working in one area for the most part. There's um, there's two different sections. I, I this is sort of ad hoc here. I let's break this into a, a separate like part two because sure there's two things that you wrote about and, and we'll link the, the put the links down below yeah, of preparing to sell your business. Then. The first part is go. preparing to sell, which I, I think we started touching, but I really want to get as like tactical and strategic as possible so people sort of have a a bit of a checklist of thinking about it because I, th I still think this is very of a taboo subject where it, it's awkward um but it would be really cool to demystify it and then the second part is you wrote and talk about six types of buyers to think about mm -hmm. and we touched a little bit on um family but there's there's five other really interesting ones, including employees, which I you know I'd like to dig into more, um, and and some others on that list. So anyway, we'll link down the, the articles down below, um, and and then let's let's dive into this on the second one. Is that does that sound good? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, Mark, what? Okay, until sorry, if you're listening to this and it's interesting to you what book or what resources can someone start reading, watching, listening to until they hear episode two of this? Well, I mean, they just, just Google sell my business, sell my small business and, you know, go out and, sit and find out what's going on. There's tons of information out there and coming out of the pandemic, the biggest issue that we face as leaders in the industry, and I consider both of you guys, the new generation of leaders moving forward. You're influencing an entire generation to run their business in the environment of your generation. I don't always agree with it, but you know, this is old guy looking back. If I had looked back at myself and I, and I did this, I mean, this last week going through all of the stuff from 50 years back, I'm looking at financial statements from 1979 and 1980 and the old Mark looking at the young 25-year-old Mark, I would say, what the hell are you thinking? You're not going to be in business if you keep doing this. 
You're so over leveraged at this point that all you need to do is have a hiccup and you're done. You're toast. And in fact, that's what happened. We grew so fast. It took me five years to, to recover the business, to, to recover the cash flow, to where I wasn't chasing cash every single week for payroll, for rent, for, for vendors. I found so many letters where your account's been put on hold until you can up, you know, until you can uh, make a payment. And, you know, just threatening letters from, from suppliers. And, and I always would just say, look, I'm doing the best I can. I'm, I'm growing. I'm, you know, I kept in communication with them and they knew that I was on top of it, that I was aware of the situation and I, and I was working on it. And so they continued to fund us, but little bits. I found one where I'd ordered 30,000 shirts and they gave me $3,000 of credit. I go, this is ridiculous. This is barely even a day's worth of production. And the, the credit manager goes, yeah, but you know, until you can improve your cash flow and profitability, we can't give you any more credit. So there was nobody there. Credit at that time with the bank was 21% interest. Imagine that, 21%, that's like credit card interest. You can't grow a company you know, at a million dollars you know, or $150,000, $200,000 a month of business on 21% money. That's that's way more than that's way more than you're even you could possibly even generate profit wise. So it was not possible to really do it, and so you had to think differently. Thank you everybody for listening. Let's tune in on the second because I I feel like so much of this, which was good though, went in from 200k to 4.6 million, which I really like, and I'm also I'm kind of thinking of like maybe that's a really good subject because there's some really good sales tactics there, but I I do want to dive into this too. So. Don't forget to listen to part two. We'll come out with this uh, soon after. Hopefully we can tie them together so uh, you guys can watch them together. Mr. Kudre, I appreciate the time. Dr. Kudre, I'm sorry. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Steven, I'm Bruce from Printavo. Thanks for listening to this episode of Printavo Pronounces Podcast. We'll see you in the next one.